The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church. We're uh, finishing up our study of 1 John. Actually, probably one more week and we're done. But for our time this morning... I want to focus just on this idea of the evil one that John mentions in verse 18 and 19. He says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. And that's a correct translation, by the way. It does, there, you know, translations that add continue to sin or go on sinning, those are not correct translations. This is a literal translation, does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Now, we spent our last time studying the phrase, the one who is born of God keeps him. And if you remember, we said this could be translated as him, the one who is born of God keeps him, referring to Christ, or it could be himself could be translated, referring to Christ or referring to the believer. And as we saw in our last study, there are many times in Scripture when believers are told to keep themselves, but I don't think this is one of them. I see this as talking about Christ keeping believers eternally safe. I think that the last phrase in the verse lends to this. It says, and the evil one doesn't touch them. The reason the evil one doesn't touch them is because Christ is guarding them. The evil one can't touch believers because Christ is guarding, Christ is praying for them. Look at John 17, 15. This is the Lord's high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Yeshua is praying for His disciples to be protected from Satan. Let me ask you something. Do you think His prayers get answered? you think when Yeshua prays, the Father answers those prayers? Absolutely. The evil one cannot touch them because Christ has prayed for them. Now, the words evil one are from the Greek word paneros, which is a word that could be neuter or masculine in gender. It may represent the neuter, that which is evil, or the masculine, the evil one. But in almost every case in which this expression occurs, it's a reference to a personal masculine evil one, and that is most likely the meaning here. So John uses the term evil one interchangeably with the term the devil. He says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So here John is affirming this whole world is under this controlling influence of the evil one. However, believers don't belong to the world anymore. If we back up to chapter 4, he says, they are from the world. He's speaking of the secessionists, the opponents that he, that he is battling here. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. In other words, we're not from the world. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. 
So he says the teaching that all believers, or all unbelievers, I mean, he's all unbelievers are under the control of the evil one, has its counterpart in the Gospel of John, where three times in the Gospel, John mentions the prince or the ruler of the world. Now, in the context of 1 John, those in the world include the secessionists, whom the author now regards as belonging to the world. They are the ones he is writing against. So, who or what is this evil one? And this is kind of where we left off last time. If you remember, we were talking about this. We're, and I said, believe it or not, there's a lot of debate on this subject as far as who is the evil one. When it comes to spirit beings such as Satan, the devil, demons, unclean spirits, there's basically three positions. Alright? And I want to share with you those positions and we'll talk a little bit about them then this morning. Uh, three positions on Satan the evil one. Number one, some believers don't believe in a personal devil or demons. To them, there's no such thing. There never was such a thing. There's nothing. They don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in demons. They just don't believe in it. All right. Position number two, this is probably the most popular. Some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings, and they're still very active today. He said that's probably the most prevalent position today. And then thirdly, some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings, but are all defeated and destroyed in AD 70 when Christ returned. Now, those who hold to to the view one, hold the idea that Satan is not a real spiritual being. Instead, it's merely referring to a personification of sinfulness of the human heart. Or to wicked human beings. They would say that Satan is merely our own internal sinful human nature or inclination to sin. All right. Now, how does that view fit with Scripture? I mean, well, let's start by looking at a verse in the Tanakh, Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen. It says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Alright, now, here the word demons is from the Hebrew word shade. And these shade, these demons, are called gods. This is the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, the first gods here is Eloah, and the second time it's used, it's Elohim. Alright, now here's what's important. Here's what you need to get here. Demons here are called Elohim. Now, we've gone over this many times, so hopefully you understand this. Michael Heiser says this, Elohim is a place of residence locator. Meaning, when something something is called an Elohim, it means they don't dwell in our realm. They dwell in the spirit realm. They are an Elohim. It's used of those in the spirit world. Now, one time in our Bible, this is used of a man. Why is it used of a man? Because he's dead. Okay? The man is dead, so he doesn't live in this realm anymore. He lives in the spirit realm. So in this verse, demons are called Elohim, meaning they're spirit beings. They're not sinful human nature. Let's look at the familiar temptation passage in Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, there's a preterist by the name of Francis Beefert who holds to view number one, and he's written a book, and somebody sent me the book that he wrote, and in this book, he attempts to support the position that Satan is not a real spiritual being, but instead is merely referring to a personification of sinfulness in the human heart or to wicked human beings. The book is entitled Satan, the Great Deception, and in chapter 3 of the book, um, which he titled The Garden of Eden, he writes this, before, before proceeding in our search for understanding, we should bear in mind that science has determined that snakes are of lesser intelligence than other beasts of the field. I'm like, so? I don't understand the point here, but okay. As they are unable to learn or function above their natural instinctive abilities. Okay, so what is the assumption here? There was a snake in the garden, right? Okay. Was there a snake in the garden? We'll talk about that in a minute. He goes on to say this. The Genesis story depicts the serpent as speaking. The only other creature in God's creation with the gift of speech is man. Is that true? You know of anything else that spoke? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Some translation says the dumb ass spoke. I'm like, he's st they're still speaking, okay? It still goes on, alright? He says, therefore, setting aside the concept of Satan and considering the use of the term serpent in the Hebrew writings, we can only conclude... You get that? Be careful when people say that. We can only conclude... In other words, if you think anything else, you're kind of dumb, okay? Because we can only conclude that the term is used metaphorically of a human being. Really? So this could only be used of a human being. This is the only conclusion we could come to. But we know of another creature that spoke, okay? And what he takes here, what he does here is just a huge, huge leap. It seems obvious to me that Francis doesn't know much about Hebrew grammar, okay? Now, I don't say this to be mean. I don't know this man. I've never met this man. Okay, so I don't know him, but I do know this. He doesn't know a lot about Hebrew grammar. He doesn't know a lot about the A&E culture, ancient Near Eastern culture. And he doesn't know a lot about pseudepigrapha writings. All right, all very important to this subject. And let me ask you this. What does science or snakes have to do with anything? You know, what is, you know, science says snake, what, what, do we care about, does science tell us that donkeys can speak? Does science tell us that men can walk on water? Oh, I mean, I don't understand what that had to do with anything. All right, so we see here that it was a serpent who tempted them, right? Now Francis writes, and considering the use of the term serpent in the Hebrew writings, we can only conclude that the term is used metaphorically of a human being. Well, if we really consider the use of the term serpent in the Hebrew writings, I believe that we would see that serpent is a divine being. It is not a member of the animal kingdom. It's a member of the divine council. Let's look at this text in Genesis 1. Serpent here 
is from the Hebrew word nakash, which according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser, is most likely a triple entendre. Alright, nakash is a triple entendre. Now that is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root of nakash is nun, het, shin, Hebrew letters, which is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in the Hebrew. So if you take nakash as pointing to the noun, the word would mean serpent. Alright? Now that's a valid translation, but you have to keep in mind that serpent is not a member of the animal kingdom. If you were to take it as a verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. So nakash could imply a deceiver. That option also fits the story. As an adjective, it would mean bronze or shining one. Now in our text, it is ha-nakash, the shining one. And here's the thing we have to understand. Luminosity is a characteristic of divine beings in the Hebrew Bible and in A&E text. Luminosity is not a characteristic of an animal. It's not a characteristic of a man. This is a divine being. This is not an animal. This is not a man. Do you think Eve would carry on a conversation with a snake? I don't think so. But she would talk to a divine being. See, Adam and Eve lived in the garden of God. They were very familiar with these divine beings. God didn't live in the garden alone. His family, the divine council was there with Him. And this divine being is communicating with Eve. So what we have in Genesis 3 is a divine being. Not an animal. This is a throne room guardian. A seraph. A serpentine being who was part of the divine council in Eden. And they decide to deceive Eve, decide to deceive humanity to get them kicked out of the garden. To get humans removed from Eden, from Yahweh's council and family. Listen, we don't know for how long, but for a long time, the divine council dwelt in Eden with God. God creates man and brings him into the garden. And these divine beings said, we don't like this. We don't like this creature man being in our territory. So they want him removed. So all we've got to do is get him to disobey God, and God will take care of it. God will kick him out. In First Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphal work, that's quoted in the Bible, the temptation of Eve is attributed to Gadriel. Here, in Genesis, it's attributed to Satan. Now, the link between Satan and the serpent is also attested in the book of The Life of Adam and Eve, in chapter 33, another pseudepigraphal work, and the book of 2 Enoch, chapter 31. Both texts state that it was the devil who led Eve astray. The Life of Adam and Eve, chapter 33, states this. Moreover, the Lord God gave us two angels to guard us. The hour came when the angels had ascended to worship in the sight of God. Immediately, the enemy, the devil, found an opportunity while the angels were absent and the devil led your mother astray to eat the unlawful forbidden tree. And she ate and gave it to me. So, the divine being, Satan, seems to have been jealous of man And so he wants to get him kicked out. He wants to get him to sin. So Yahweh will kick him out of the cosmic mountain. Out of his dwelling place. So Hebrew grammar, A&E culture, 
and the pseudepigraphal writings all picture Satan as a divine being. And that's very important. Why is that important? Because, listen, this is the culture of the Bible. This is the context of the Bible. The A&E culture, the pseudepigraphal writings, and, of course, Hebrew grammar. But Francis writes this in his book. He says, The conversation that is recorded as taking place between Eve and the serpent symbolized the war taking place within Eve, which, which ended with her giving way to her carnal nature and rebelling against the will of God. So, according to this text, according to what Francis said here, who is the serpent? Eve's fighting with herself. Okay, she's standing there, she's going back and forth, arguing with herself. Now, okay, so here he's saying it's Eve. The serpent is Eve. But interesting, um, this is not the Jewish writers saw it, okay, not at all. Francis goes on to say this, that Adam is the serpent, well, it was just Eve, now it's Adam, is illustrated in verse 1 where it is recorded that he, the serpent, said to the woman, Adam is the only male presence in the Garden of Eden with the ability to speak. Again, based on what, you know, you're just... Assumptions out of the air. There's nothing else there that can speak. Why? Why do you think that? Where do you get that from? Francis has. I don't know if Francis understands this, but divine beings can speak. Okay. Now, to most modern Christians, the event in Genesis three, the temptation of Adam and Eve, is the sole reason that mankind is so evil today. But to a second temple Hebrew. Again, people, this is the context of the Bible, the Second Temple literature, the Second Temple thought. The Second Temple thought was that this is only one of the three events that caused man to be so evil. And to them, the event in Genesis 3 would have been placed low on the list. Let me give you a quote from Michael Heiser again, who is a Bible scholar. Heiser has a PhD in Bible and ancient Semitic languages. I think he translates like 12 or 13 different Semitic languages. Okay, so he's a man who understands the culture, understands the language. This is very profound for our understanding. This is what he says. 99% of Second Temple Judaism believe that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve. But the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references in intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers. Everything. Now, people, the reason this is so huge is it tells us that simple Second Temple Judaism, this is what they believed. And again, this is the context of the Bible. This is the culture the Bible comes out of. It tells us that the Second Temple Judaism held a supernatural view of the Bible. They saw Genesis 3 as supernatural what was happening there. They saw Genesis 6 and the sons of God. Divine beings come down separating man from God. This is what everybody, he said, believe. 
every second temple text. That's a lot of text, people, except for four verses. Everything says it was because of the watchers. Now look at what Job tells us about these sons of God in Job 38, 4-7. God is talking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God is actually being sarcastic here with Job, okay? Oh, you know so much, Job? You tell me. Explain this to me, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. No, he didn't know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here we have the morning stars, the morning, or the sons of God. These are names of divine beings. These are council members. And they're shouting for joy at creation. Now some folks see the Son of God as humans, but I want to know how humans are there at creation. I'd like someone to explain that. Alright, let's move into the New Testament. Matthew 4.1. We're still looking at the view one that Satan, demons, they're not real. They're just personifications of our own evilness or something. Uh, Matthew 4.1. Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, is this Yeshua being tempted by his own sinful nature? To go there is an attack on the deity of Christ, people. Francis writes this. We also bear in mind that Jesus, being a man, had the same disposition as Paul and other men. An adversarial nature that opposes the desire to do right. Did Christ have an adversarial nature that He was fighting all the time? The Bible teaches us that Christ was sinless. Philippians 2.7 Speaking of the kenosis, it says of Christ, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here the word likeness is the Greek word homoioma. Homoioma suggests similarity, but difference. Though His humanity was genuine, He was different from all other humans, and that He was sinless. We see the same Greek word used in Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So Christ came in the likeness, again, homoioma, the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning similar but different. The difference was, He wasn't sinful. Yeshua had real human flesh. He felt pain, sorrow, He wept. He cried, he died, but he was sinless. He didn't have an adversarial nature. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Basically he's saying here, Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Christ knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Yeshua can't be tempted by His own adversarial nature because He didn't have an adversarial nature. 
Is Christ being tempted by wicked human beings then? If, if, if this is not Christ's own nature, then is it other human beings that maybe are t- tempting Him and not the devil? Well, most would say that Christ's adversaries were the Jews. We realize that. Could Satan here have represented the Jews? Well, look at Matthew 4, 8-10. through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now, if this was, if Satan here is representing the Jews, and I want you to get something here. The devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world. What kingdom are they in here? What, what kingdom is Christ living in in the flesh when he's here? It's Rome. Okay, the kingdom of Rome. Rome is ruling over Israel. And so the devil takes him to this high mountain and shows him, you know, Rome and says, you can have all these if you worship me. Hang on, we'll come back to that. Let me ask you this. Would the Jews ask Christ to worship them? No, that would not fit anything with what they believe. So is Christ carrying a conversation, carrying on a conversation here with himself? With his adversarial nature? Throughout the context, the tempter or the devil is given personal attributes and clearly distinguished from Yeshua as being another person. Nowhere in this context do we get the idea that the devil is merely referring to a sinful human nature of Christ. It's kind of ridiculous to think that a sinful nature within Christ demanded Christ to worship Christ, and if he did, Christ would give Christ the nations. Satan offering Christ the nations, people, is not an empty promise here. Because I believe Satan was the ruler of this kingdom of Rome at the time. Alright? He was ruling that nation. So sinful human beings could not make this offer to Christ. You can't make that offer. Now those who deny the existence of Satan or demons want to make everything the result of natural consequences. A Bishop Lightfoot writes this, Unclean spirits and demonic possession seem to be no more than physical and mental illness. Okay, that's all it is. Mental illness, right? Look at Mark 6.13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Here we see a contrast between demons and sickness. They were not casting out mental illness. Notice what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, chapter 6. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying here to the Ephesians, your struggle is not with humanity. It's not with human power. Now, We know what he is saying here. The question is, what does he mean? Well, the world rulers is from the Greek word arche, and it has a wide range of meanings, and it can be used of human or it can be used of divine beings. The word authorities is from the word exousia, which means power, ability, privilege. That also can refer to humans or can refer to divine beings. But notice the rest of the verse. He says, cosmic powers. You all know what that Greek word there is, right? Come on. Cosmokarator. Alright? That's the Greek word there. Cosmic powers is cosmokarator, which according to Strong's Concordance, 
means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. Thayer says it means Lord of the world, prince of this age, the devil and his demons. This is the only use in the New Testament of cosmocurator, but it's used of spiritual beings in the pseudepigrapha, in the Testament of Solomon. A pseudepigraphal work attributed to Solomon. All right. In a dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible, cosmocurator means Lord of the world, world ruler. It occurs in pagan literature as an epithet for the gods, for heavenly beings. So, I have to ask this. Why would Paul use this word that is only used here in the Bible, but is used in other literature for spiritual beings if he didn't mean spiritual beings? He's being confusing here. Alright? Paul goes on to say, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These forces are spiritual. They're not human. And they're in heavenly places, which denotes the spiritual realm, the place where Yahweh dwells. So this is speaking about a battle with spiritual forces that are not flesh and blood. Alright, back to our three positions here. I think that this first position is unbiblical. I think the Bible clearly talks about demons, it talks about Satan, it talks about other gods that the Lord had created. I think that modern science has caused many believers to question or downright deny the spiritual. To those in the ancient Near East, everything was spiritual. And to us, nothing is. If someone believes in God and angels, why would it be hard to believe in Satan and demons? Not really sure. Alright, verse 2. Let's look at that for a second. It says that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings who are still very active today. And as you read through the Gospels, you see many encounters with Satan and demons. Now, as I said, this is probably the most prevalent view today in our society. The view of many today is that whatever happened in the Gospels and in the book of Acts is intended to describe Christianity as it ought to be in every age. So is it normal for us to have problems with demons? I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've never had an encounter with a demon. I mean, depends on how you define demons. I know I I dealt with some strange people, but (laughs) never had a problem with a demon. At one time in my Christian life, I read a book called uh, The Diary of an Exorcist by Wynn Worley, and he talked about demons, and demons were everywhere. Everywhere. There's a demon behind every bush. He talked about this lady, she had the demon of oily hair. It would torment her, and when she treated her oily hair, then the demon of dry hair would come. And then she would, you know, and they talk about the demon of post-nasal drip. And I mean, it gets ridiculous, people, okay? I mean, it just plain gets ridiculous. So is it normal for us to have problems with demons? Like I said, I don't know. How normal is it to have it? Let's talk a little bit about demon possession. This is a big issue today and something we have to grasp because you got these different preachers, these different faith dealers, they're casting out demons, they're Ernest Angley, anybody seen Ernest Angley? You know who his favorite demon is? The, the nicotine demon. Man, he's always fighting that demon, you know, because he just touches you and he knows, oh, come out, thou nicotine demon, you know, these people smoke. He probably just has, he can smell and say, so, oh, they smoke, yeah, they must have a nicotine demon. The first thing we need to understand here, people, 
is that most of the New Testament references to demon possession appear in the Gospels and represents an outburst of satanic opposition to Yeshua's or Yahweh's work in Christ. All right, Christ is on the scene, so there's this outburst of demonic activity. Why? They're trying to stop the cross. All right, they want to stop that. We have no reference to demon possession after the book of Acts. It's like it just went away. We don't have much references in the latter half of the book of Acts. We encounter occult practices, magicians, and others who dabble in dark powers, but seldom an evil spirit who has taken over a life. We have no references whatsoever to demon possession in the epistles. None of them. We have no reference in the Old Covenant to demon possession either. Demon possession seems to be something that happened only during the time of Christ and the Apostles for the purpose of manifesting the power of Christ over the demonic world. Now, what about those today who claim to be casting out demons? Again, people like Ernest Angley, these other faith healers, like I said, they, they got some you know, demons of dry hair and oily hair and post-nasal drip and all these crazy demons. Does that fit the biblical pattern? Well, exorcism in the Bible concerned those clearly recognized as possessed. The signs of demon possession in the New Testament include speechlessness, people were unable to say anything, deafness, blindness, fierceness, unusual strength, convulsions, and foaming at the mouth. We don't see too much of that today. Look at Luke 8, 27-29. When Yeshua had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Alright, so here are these demons. This guy shows up that has demons. He's got no clothes on. He's been living out in the graves, in the tombs. You know, he doesn't live in a house. This is a little bit different than what we see today, alright? When he saw Yeshua, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Yeshua, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So notice the supernatural strength here. This man had been bound with chains and fetters, but he just snapped the chains off. He tore off the fetters. No one was able to subdue this man. This is a remarkable demonstration of demonic power. We don't see this stuff today. The exorcisms in the Gospels and in Acts were not nebulous cases of the demon of drugs or alcohol or post-nasal drip or nicotine like we see today. All right, So I don't see that view two is biblical either. Okay, And we'll talk about this a little more in a minute. And that leaves us with view three, which is the one I believe because the other two I've just canceled out. All right, Some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings but they were defeated and destroyed in AD 70 when Christ returned. All right. Now, I don't see the second view as biblical, or the first view as biblical, and again, that just leaves verse 3. Look at 1 John 3.8. 1 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now he's telling us here, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy it. What are the works of the devil that Yeshua came to destroy? Well, John said earlier that Christ appeared to take away sin. Something he achieved by offering himself as the atoning sacrifice. He also says that Yeshua's blood, his death, cleanses people from their sins. Now we can safely infer that through his atoning death, Yeshua dealt with the problem of human sin, and in doing so, he destroyed the works of the devil. Here's the key here, people. It's my understanding that the works of the devil were to separate man from Yahweh. That's the devil's purpose. I want to separate man from God. In Genesis 3, we see this serpentine being getting men kicked out of the garden. They want to separate man from God. We get man to sin, God kicks him out. After the fall, Adam and Eve get a promise. Genesis 3, 15. Proto-evangelum here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now, Eve's seed, a human being, is going to come and is going to fix what Adam had done. A deliverer is going to come. It is my understanding that when God made this promise, the gods understood this promise of a coming Redeemer who would be human. So the gods' next strategic move was an attempt to destroy the human race by genetically corrupting the human line so it was no longer human. And that's what we see in Genesis 6. The sons of God. Verse 2 and verse 4. They're rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host, also called watchers. They come down and they intermarry with human women. And they produce a hybrid offspring trying to destroy the human race so the Savior can't come through the race. They married women. They violated the heavenly earthly division that Yahweh had established. So we have Satan corrupting man in the garden. Then we have the watchers, the sons of God, corrupting the gene pool with hybrid beings in Genesis 6. And then we have Satan try to kill Yeshua when he was a baby through Herod's decree that all two-year-old children be executed. So again, now the Savior's born, now he's trying to wipe them out. Well, that didn't work either. So then he goes to the Satan, he goes to, Satan goes to Christ and he tempts him at the beginning of his ministry to try to get him to sin. Nothing worked. Yeshua's victory. Listen, all this is to stop the cross. Okay? Because once the cross happens, what can demons do? It's done. Okay? The work is over. And Paul in Corinthians says, had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? They didn't get it. Look at Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers, speaking of Christ, and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. People, according to my Bible, Satan is a defeated foe. Yeshua the Christ has conquered the devil. Now, most Christians believe that Satan and his demons will be destroyed, but when does it happen? Well, most Christians look for the event to happen at a future day when the earth and everything physical is destroyed. Well, let me share with you a couple of scriptures here and see if I can at least jog your thinking on this. 
Romans 16. Remember I said that Satan was the god over Rome. He was the one, he took Christ and he offered him these Roman kingdoms. So we're in 16, talking to the Romans. The god of peace, Paul says, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua the Christ be with you. The Greek word here for crush is suntribo. It means to crush completely, to shatter. When is it that Satan is to be crushed completely? What does it say? Soon. Soon to who? Soon to you? Why not you? You would, Oh, you, you weren't a Roman in the first century. Okay. He's writing to first century Roman Christians and he says, Soon. I'm going to tell you, this is wild, so hang on to this, okay? Soon here means soon. That's what it means. And you know what? God can tell time. And you say, well, soon to God is not... God is not writing to Himself. He's writing to human beings. And to these human beings, He says, He's going to soon crush Satan. When is Satan to be crushed completely? It's at the end of the Old Covenant when the Lord returned in judgment and destroyed Israel. A.D. 70. Paul said here that the Roman Christians would happen soon. He would see it. He would crush them under their feet. The Greek word for soon here is takos. According to Art and Gingrich lexicon, takos is used in the Septuagint and certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste, soon. It's going to happen in your lifetime, people. So Paul told the first century Roman Christians that Satan would soon be crushed completely. People, listen to me. If Satan is still around, we have a problem with inspiration. Which, hopefully you understand, is a huge problem. Because if the Bible's not inspired by God, it's of no value to us at all. It's of no value. I believe that Satan is a defeated foe. I believe this because I believe inspiration. The Bible talks about the judgment at the end of the age. Listen, not the end of the world. Alright? Look at Matthew 13.40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Now, the King James Version here says the end of the world. And that really throws people off. You understand an age can end and the world goes on? Yeshua here is talking about something that will happen at the end of the age He was living in, the Jewish age. Notice what was to happen at the end of the age. Matthew 13, 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is speaking of national judgment. That's it's not talking about hell here. It's talking about to being cast and in this, in this thrown into the fiery furnace is speaking of national judgment. This happened in AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. This happened. It's the age he was living in. Now notice that judgment was to happen at the end of an age. The end that Yeshua is talking about was the end of the Jewish age when the wicked Jews were burned in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now the time for the demons' destruction had come. The demons understood the Messiah had come to destroy them. Living post-AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, we don't need to worry about Satan and demons because they were destroyed. 
Again, their purpose was to separate man from God. They cannot do that any longer. There is no separation from the believer in Christ. The judgment took place at the end of the Old Covenant after the Jewish temple was destroyed. So it is my position that Satan and his demons were real spiritual beings who opposed Yahweh and His people, but through the ministry of Christ they were defeated. The Bible says that. They were destroyed. The spiritual battle that the first century Christian faced is over and we don't fight that battle today. Now, if Satan and his demons were destroyed in AD 70, why are there people today who say they worship Satan? We had a question a couple of weeks ago rise about Wiccans. What is the, the, the rise of Wiccans? What is that about? If Satan is destroyed, why are we seeing this? So how do we deal with all this supposed satanic activity? Well, first of all, let me say this. I don't think anyone with a functioning brain would question evil in the world. Right? I mean, California just passed a law easing restrictions against pedophilia. People, you know, how lo- we've seen it happen. Okay, first it was homosexuality. This is good and we're po- promoting it with all the TV and movies. And then it's transgenderism and we're promoting it. Now it's pedophilia. We want to just slowly cook you in this environment where you accept everything. I'm sure you've heard about Netflix and the show they're pushing childhood uh, sexuality. They got 11 year old girls on there, and it, it is pornographic. It is sick. Let me say this, people. You go ahead and get mad at me. If you are a subscriber to Netflix and you know this, shame on you. Shame on you that you would pay to promote this garbage. See, Christians have to vote with their wallet. And if we stop supporting these ignorant people who you know, go against our values, that's how we say no. We don't support you anymore. You know, The owner of Starbucks says, if you believe in traditional marriages, I don't want you coming in my shop. No problem. I will never, ever purchase a Starbucks. I never liked it anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, and people say, well, did you cancel your Netflix subscription? No, because I think we're the only one in the world who don't have one. Never have had one, okay? But I, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by several Christians saying this is it. They say cancellations are up 8%. That's not high enough, I don't think, okay? Because that's how they're going to take what you say it's financially, all right? Listen, there is no doubt, because if you're paying attention to, not the mainstream news media, but the alternate news media, there have been, in the last three and a half years, arrest after arrest after arrest of human trafficking, of pedophiles. This thing is, there's going on, just last week, over 100 people were arrested. Children are being released. There's pedophiles in our society who are satanic and they practice child sacrifice. People don't want to talk about this. You've heard of Pizzagate. Okay? Investigate Pizzagate. You know, at first it was a conspiracy. Now it's like everybody's on board and they're saying, wow, this is crazy. Our culture, people, is loaded with evil. No doubt. But we don't need Satan, people, for men to be evil. Yahweh said this of man. Genesis 6.5 Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's man. And listen, you know that's true. 
Okay? <laughs> if you don't know that's true, then I think you're deceiving yourself. Men are evil. And the further they get away from God, the more evil they become. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Satanism today. Why are we seeing it if Satan's defeated? Why are we seeing this? A group of U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen who follow the religion of the Satanic Temple announced last year in an email that Satanic services will soon be offered on the campus. After the email was leaked, the Navy clarified that a group of midshipmen with beliefs aligned with those practiced by the Satanic Temple, had requested a space for a study group to discuss their Satanic beliefs and not for holding Satanic religious services. The USNA Command Religious Program provides for the exercise of diverse beliefs, a spokesman for the Naval Academy said. We want to be open, you know, right? Arrangements were being made to provide the midshipmen with a designated place to assemble as chaplains facilitate for the beliefs of all service members. So we just want to be inclusive. We want to let anybody who wants to believe something believe it. The beginning of this stuff, the beginning of modern Satanism, is generally attributed to the 1960s. All right? Three major trends within the movement are. Theistic or religious Satanism, atheistic or philosophical Satanism, and reactive or adolescent Satanism. These are the three different categories within the Satanic realm of worship. Now, theistic Satanists believe Satan is one of a group of super personal dark forces capable of having some control or influence over human beings who venerate, worship, or align with him. Now, here's the interesting thing about this first group. Even within occultism, theistic Satanists are extremely rare. Researchers estimate their global numbers to be in the low thousands. All right? That brings us to the next category atheistic Satanism. Okay? They don't acknowledge the existence of either God or Satan. What they identify with is Satan as symbolic adversary of religion and traditional morality. They invoke Satan not as a supernatural being, but as a symbol of man's self-gratifying ego, which is what they really worship. The Church of Satan explains their view by saying, we see the universe as being indifferent to us, and so all morals and values are subjective human constructions. Our position is to be self-centered. Oh, well, that sounds like a that sounds like a good position, doesn't it? Let's just be self-centered with ourselves being the most important person, the God of our subjective universe. So we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. <laughs> All right. Okay, let me give you the last view here. Reactive or adolescent satanism. All right. Now, these types of Satans often adopt a self-identification of Satanism as an act of adolescent rebellion against parents or society. In the, in the psychology of adolescent Satanism, Anthony Morarty says, these dabblers in Satanism tend to fall into three categories. Psychopathic delinquents, angry misfits, 
and pseudo-intellectuals. This type is likely to be the largest group within modern Satanism. These are just people rebelling, okay? Now, the primary inventor of atheistic Satanism was who? Anybody know? There you go. You knew a little bit about Anton LaVey. He created the Church of Satan in 1966. In 1969, LaVey published the Satanic Bible that outlined his religious beliefs. And by the way, this was all really stolen from somebody else. Okay? LaVey didn't come up with this. The essence of LaVey and Satanism is captured in the nine Satanic statements made in the introductory chapters of the Bible. Let me run through these real quick. This is, what, this is their declaration of faith. Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. You, no wonder people are on board, right? Hey, that sounds like a good thing. Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. So if you think someone deserves it, you can be kind to them. Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. I don't even get that one. But <laughs> Satan represents man as just another animal who, because of his divine, spiritual, and intellectual development, has become the most vicious animal of all. Satan represents all the so-called sins as they lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. Can you understand why this would be attractive? I mean, hey, it's just whatever feels good, do it. It's all about you. The last one was Satan has been the best friend the Christian church has ever had as he has kept it in business all these years. That's their position. They're keeping us in business. Isn't it nice of them? Well, founded in 2013, the Satanic Temple has overtaken the Church of Satan as the most popular organization for Satanists in America. Although both share the ideological, ideologically of atheistic Satanism, and they both believe the same thing, the two groups oppose the core activities of each other. So you got what well, you got here, denominationalism within Satanism. And they're fighting over, well, we don't believe that. We don't do this. We don't. And here's the Church of Satan fighting just like, wow, we're the, amazing, huh? Just getting along like that, all right? Listen, the Satanic Temple claims they are an actual religion. And they say the idea that religion belongs to supernaturalists is ignorant, backward, and offensive, according to their website. All right? They say this. The thing is, the Church of Satan doesn't believe in the devil. This is from their own doctrine, okay? It doesn't even recognize Satan as a physical or spiritual being. As far as the Christian is concerned, there's no such thing as heaven or hell. Alright? Satanists loyal to the Church of Satan are, in fact, atheists who accept all genders, sexualities, sexual preference, and races. So, this is all about us. All about you. It's humanism is what it is. Okay, would well, probably be a better name than Satanism, but they want to throw the name Satan out there. It makes it sound like, oh, look at we, no, we're just worshiping ourselves. So the Satanism that we see today is nothing but people worshiping themselves. And if you look at their doctrines, you can understand why it's all about us. All about self gratification. All about self fulfillment. It's all about caring about nobody else. It's just sinful human people. Okay? 
They do what makes them happy, and they call it the worship of Satan. So that's basically my position here. You know, you'll see these outbursts, and you see more and more people in the area of Wiccans or worshipers or Satans are doing stuff like this. It's just humanity at its bottom level, okay? Worshiping themselves. They're not worshiping some supernatural being. They don't even believe in a supernatural being. So my position is Satan was destroyed with the destruction of the temple in AD 70 because, again, the whole purpose was to stop redemption. Redemption has been complete. They can't do anything. They can't separate man from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul said in Romans, all right? So we're secure, people. So their work is done. They're finished and they were destroyed. That's my position and I'm sticking to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us the spirit of Bereans. We would not accept this. We would not reject this. We would study this to see if it's so. Father, I thank you for the day and age we live with the opportunities, with so much at our disposal as far as tools for digging and studying and learning. Give us a hunger, Lord, to know the truth and only the truth. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Yes? Um, I was going to say, what is is your position on the church, um, on followers of Jesus Christ, celebrating, like, the feast days, and then uh, celebrate, like, some celebrate Halloween what, like, what, is, what do you think about that? I yeah, well, okay, that's, those are diverse questions there because the feast days, all right, the feast days were biblical days given to Israel. I think the feast days have been fulfilled in Christ. So Christ is the fulfillment of the feast days. They all pointed to him. I have a series, I think it's nine parts now, on the feast days and basically showing that these feasts pointed to Christ. All right, so they're fulfilled in him. I don't have a problem if Christians want to celebrate as long as they understand, you know, there's a fulfillment already here. Now, as far as Thanksgiving, again, it depends on where you're at with that. And I've been in different places. That's the devil's holiday. Well, the devil's done. He's destroyed. Huh? What did I say? I said Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <thank you. laughs> no turkey? What you doing, Listen, Thanksgiving's definitely of the devil because when I, you know, I, I mean... How do you have a holiday you call it Thanksgiving, you, you overeat, and then you complain? No, I, I think Thanksgiving is a, a biblical holiday, actually. We should be thanking all the time, all right? So, but, but Halloween, it's just what you make of it. You know, it's a bunch of kids going out having fun. That's fine, okay? They want to say, well, no, it's demonic. No, it's not demonic to these kids. They're just dressing up. They're going begging for candy, okay? You know, which we probably won't happen this year because, you know, you'll get COVID candy. So, Elijah. Do what? Parrot. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's been waiting all message to say that. Parrots can talk. You're right. Okay, so this guy, I mean, donkeys can talk. Serpents can talk. Parrots can talk. You know, yeah, you're right. Thank you. You have a parrot that talks? You've heard of them, huh? Could you understand what they said? Yeah, me too. I saw, I mean, you probably saw the video. There's a video on social media where this guy's on his driveway working on his car 
And the neighbors called the cops because his parrot's in the house yelling, help, help me, have someone tell me. And so the cops show up and the guy's like, come on back here. And he takes them back and there's the parrot and they're like, okay, you know. But it was funny, they called the cops on him. They thought, you know, this guy's got somebody locked up in his house. Yes? If Satan was destroyed in AD 70, how do you explain him being chained in Revelation and eventually destroyed again, thrown into the pit? Also, what about the beast and all the supernatural good and evil going on during that? Okay, good. That's a good question, and my answer probably will shock you. But here's the here's the deal: the end times are over. The end times ended in AD 70. Okay, I believe that the millennium lasted from AD 30 to AD 70. It was a time of transition between the old and new covenants. All right. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every time the Lord talks about the return, there is always a time statement. Always, soon, quickly, shortly, some of you standing here, this generation. It is so clear in the Bible that the Lord was going to return in that first century, but we've missed it for thousands of years. And we think, you know, well, we're still waiting for the end time. No, the end times are ended. And so that stuff that you're talking about was over and done with, okay? And again, I know this is new. And I know people get, uh, wow, that's that's a crazy view. But all I ask is you you look at the time statements, understand this. Here's here's where people, I think, get off track today. Um, The first thing you have to do if you're going to really understand this Bible is you got to read it. Ah, Thank you, Dora. You definitely have to read it. Most people don't read this. They listen to other people. I mean, we should read this cover to cover. Get familiar with this book. But secondly, you have to understand... There's a the, the biblical science of interpreting scripture is called hermeneutics. There's laws as to how you interpret this book. Any written document is subject to interpretation. Speaking of the Supreme Court, you know what the Supreme Court's job is to do? Interpret the Constitution. Not make laws, not write laws, not make... No, they're to interpret. So we are to interpret this book. And one of the, one of the laws of hermeneutics is called... Audience relevance. In other words, what did it mean to the people to whom it was written? Because this book, this is not written to Christians in Tidewater. Alright? It is for us. It's not written to us. It's written to the Galatians. It's written to the Ephesians. You get to the book of Revelation, and people are thinking Revelation is going to happen in the future. He says in the very beginning that things must shortly come to pass. And he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. He names the seven churches and he tells them all this is going to happen. And then he ends the very book of Revelation six times by saying soon, soon, quickly, shortly. But we've missed all this because somehow it's like we we take the word soon and we say, well, God didn't mean soon. What else did God not mean then? And again, well, day of the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Right. Not so for us. And the Bible is written to us from God in our language so we can understand it. And when he says soon, that's what he meant. So that's the answer to that question. So that's why I think you know it was all wiped out. It was all done in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Go ahead. When you say Christ appeared in AD 70, I have 
not heard this teaching. Right. So okay. what, do you, what do you mean by that? Um, Christ's appearance was the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? He appeared in judgment. Now, this is very typical. The idea of coming on a cloud, all right, that is very familiar. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 19, God says, I'm coming to Egypt riding on a swift cloud. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Nobody saw God. Nope, because what the idea of a cloud coming is a coming in judgment. Israel rejected Christ, he destroyed Jerusalem. Listen, they have never sacrificed since AD 7. The whole Jewish religion was rewritten after AD 70. Everything's different because the center of the religion was sacrificed. It's done, it's over. I'll give you a book before you leave here that explains this view just so you'll have a clue as to where I'm coming from, okay? Because I know it's confusing. Well, but yeah, but you look at this world, you're saying, we're taking a snapshot of our world. Go back, go back to other centuries. You'll see the same crazy thing. You know, I mean, wild, wild, crazy ideas of how bad the world has been. Again, I know I can't explain all this to you right now. I'll give you a book, okay? And then I'll answer all your questions. Anybody else got a question? Not all of them. Yeah, not all of them. I got some here. Okay, Okay. the question, here's a question. It says, is it possible that the hybrid offspring of the Watchers through their DNA are still on earth today? My position there would be no. I think David in the conquest wiped out all the hybrid offspring. All right, that's what David was doing. He was going in and he was wiping out the giants destroying that, you know, the flood destroyed a lot of them, and after that, David went in with the conquest, David destroyed the rest of them. So I know, I do not believe that that hybrid offspring is here today. Okay, uh, here's a question. It says, so according to the sermon today, you are acknowledging that paganism prior to 70 AD and Egyptian gods such as Kek and Ra could have been worshipped as spiritual beings. These are the same gods that were allowed by Yahweh to roam the earth. Yes, I, I believe a lot of uh, mythology is, comes from truth. Okay, There were these other gods. The Bible talks about these gods that God created. It, the Bible talks about God giving these gods over at, to rule the nations. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. He gave them, and he, God said, I'm done with you because of your sin. And so God chose Israel, and they became His people. The nations were ruled by these false gods. So yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that you know, we see in mythology is actually truth. And again, the Bible bears this out.
Okay. I don't know who this is from, but they said, uh, ha ha, David. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> like, I don't know if that means you're an idiot. I'm not sure what that means. Okay. I, he says this, I got delivered from drugs and alcohol at an Ernest Angley rally back when I first became a Christian over 35 years ago. He picked me out of a large crowd and said, son, God is delivering you out of the bondage of alcohol and drug addiction. Careful, Dave. Okay, listen, I've been to Ernest Angley Crusades, okay? I thought this guy, you know, at one time I was in the charismatic movement, I thought this is good. I went to his crusade here at Hampton, walked in the door, first thing we're greeted with, a table, they're selling 8 by 10 glossies of Ernest Angley in a prayer position, and I wanted to throw up on the table. I'm like, this is sickening, what is this about? Okay, then I go in there and we're sitting there. And if you love Jesus, wave $20. If you love Jesus, wave not. No, they started high and then they worked their way down. In other words, okay, if you only love my dollars worth, raise your dollar. And they're passing Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around. Okay, while this service is going on, we have a healing line. He's healing people. Low back pain, sinus headache, real, real disabling things that you could see, right? Okay, while this is going on, a man up near the front has a heart attack. The healing line went on. little commotion down there. Through the side door, ambulance came in. A couple people, they're working on them. I'm sitting there thinking, does nobody else see this? Does nobody else get this? He's got a healing line, and the ambulance is, people are out there working. They put him on the stretcher, and they carried him out. And I'm like, what in the world, people? What in the world? Yes, you maybe got healed of drugs and alcohol. Don't contribute that to Ernest Angley. He's got nothing to do with that. He's nobody's savior. The man is a lunatic. He's got a telephone in his wife's coffin. So when the rapture happens, she can call him and said, it's happening. He is a lunatic. Okay? Gives Christians such a bad name. You know, don't base, listen, I don't argue with anybody's experience, but don't bla- don't go basing your, you know, experience and make it, you know, be, you know, a, a standard for everybody else. Okay, i got a question here, um, and we'll wrap this up. Sorry it got so late. What book would you recommend if you are new to fulfilled eschatology? You mentioned giving a lady a book, right. <laughs> okay, uh, I would recommend Glenn Hill's book. Okay? Glenn Hill's book. I think most of you know Glenn. Glenn is a friend of this ministry. The book is called Christianity's Great Dilemma. Glenn was a preacher, a pastor for years, and this book is written in just such a way that it's like you could disagree with his theology, but you'll like him anyway. Okay, Glenn is just a super nice guy. In fact, I had a conversation with him yesterday. Uh, pray for him. He's, he had knee surgery and he's doing better, but he's still having some struggles with uh, recovering from that. So, but that's this is a great book. We recommend this book to any beginner. Uh, you can write Glenn and get it. Christianity's Great Dilemma. Okay. So, all right. I'll, I'll, Jerry and I were wondering if Ernest Angel was still alive. He's 97. I've been a familiar presence 
decades, but recent sexual harassment allegations have brought unwanted attention to him and his Ohio-based ministry. No, say it's not so. A preacher accused of sexual harassment? <laughs> that is shocking. Oh, my word. You know, people, this is sickening, okay? This is just plain sickening. But people accept it. People tolerate it, okay? I went to the gym with a man who was a pastor in the area here. Had a large church. He just built this huge multi-million dollar building. And then it was found out that he's sleeping with several women in the church. So they asked him to leave. So he went down the street and he started a new church. And a lot of people just went with him. Do we not? I mean, what is the point of any of this if you don't care about morality, if you don't care about honesty and integrity? It's just sad. People, we've got to learn to think and we've got to learn to line up with the Word of God with what it says, not with personalities, not with anything else, okay?